joining us is a good friend of the program, a good friend of mine personally and professionally, and he's a good friend to those of you who really want to see more jobs come back to America, more made-in-America goods, urging people to buy made-in-America goods. And really, if you care about the area of manufacturing where America has and can again lead the fray. Scott and Paul is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Their partnership established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. And for the past five years, Mr. Paul and AAM have worked to make American manufacturing a top-of-mind issue for voters and our national leaders through effective advocacy, innovative research, and a savvy PR strategy. More than a pleasure to have Scott and Paul back on the show. Hey, Scott, happy Thursday and welcome. Lovely, great to be with you, and I hope you feel better. The flu is no fun. Oh, I know, I know, I know. You, you have kids. You know how it is, right? <laughs> it's every, just... every, every season. Yeah. Every I know it's sort of like you, you know it, it it's like the the uh, chicken uh, the dog chasing its tail right you know it starts it goes around and then it comes back full circle. Um, let's talk about the uh, jobs report for uh, March. Um, this showed telltale signs that the factory sector is still struggling, and we have talked about the broader economic implications when that is the case. So let's talk about the impact that the economy on a broader level feels when the factory sector is struggling, as this March jobs report indicated. It sure does. And I think the, the weak jobs report, it certainly surprised the markets and all of the uh, forecasts had been for basically double the gains that we saw in the uh, in the private sector overall. It was It was a Pretty much a disappointing jobs report across the board, but for manufacturing, it was re- it was really really weak, and it's beginning to show um, some of the challenges that we're facing in our economy. Uh, wh- one of which is that we just have a really imbalanced trade policy. Um, the, the second of which is while uh, a lot of the lower wage jobs have been doing well and consumer spending has been picking up. Uh, manufacturing has been lagging. I mean, you hear a lot on the news, you hear a lot from the White House about how manufacturing is surging. Uh, Certainly it's doing better than it was during the depths of the Great Recession. Um, But even when you look back over past recessions, manufacturing isn't performing nearly as well as it did in recovering from almost every uh, past recession, the, the Bush recession being the, the exception to that 2001. So uh, so we have a long way to go. Uh, but I guess what concerns me is that in, in Washington, you know, the talk tends to be focused on how well the stock market is doing, you know, looking at all the export opportunities that tech companies have, uh, and very little of it is focused on uh, this sector, which is really the bread and butter of the American economy and which every community uh, depends on. And if you lose a factory, it's a, it's a whole lot harder um, to get that back. Uh, and instead, what you generally get are, are workers searching for jobs that tend to pay lower wages. Um, and, and we know that cycle, you just described it with fluid sickness, that it kind of spreads throughout the community, and you end you end up with, in in dire economic straits too when you lose that when you lose that manufacturing job. No question about it. There are people that say 
you know, those that want to uh, talk about, because we have had positive gains everywhere and across the board. We also saw that private sector job growth slowed to the weakest pace since December of 2013. And uh, as we're talking about the manufacturing employment that actually fell into contraction. You talk about trade deals, but do you think that the really, really bad weather contributed to this as well? Um, you know, obviously a lot of manufacturing jobs are not outside. So would the weather really contribute to the manufacturing sector? Yes, and I think that's a that's a particularly uh, good point. Is that th- I think some of the weakness uh, can probably be attributed to uh, the weather, although uh, I, I don't think that that fully explains what the weakness is. You've seen a lot of quarterly earnings reports from big companies come up suggesting that. Um, Quite possibly, one of the what one of the challenges is the strong dollar. Uh, another challenge is weakness that we're seeing overseas, and then in the steel industry in particular. And I know you know our our mutual friend Leo Gerard would echo this. You've seen a lot of of imports coming into the U.S. economy, uh, and as a result, you've seen a lot of layoffs at steel mills in in states like uh, Illinois. Uh, and uh, Indiana and Minnesota and Texas uh, and Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, and it's rippling throughout uh, throughout that economy. And oftentimes, an industry like steel uh, is the canary in the coal mine, uh, and, and it indicates that there's more that, that may be headed this way. People have a- will ask, and you and I have talked about um, the dollar, and we have uh, definitely talked about the dollar or a currency and currency manipulation uh, internationally. Why is the strong dollar an impediment? Uh, well, think of it this way. So, you know, if, if you were a traveler and you're looking for a hotel room overseas and the dollar is strong, you're pretty happy because you're, you're going to get a, a better deal. Your dollar is going to buy more overseas. The challenge is when you're exporting products overseas, um, your product's going to cost more. And so uh, it reduces the sales of American exports um, overseas, uh, particularly when currencies like the euro, uh, the, the, you know, which is the, the European currency, or the yen, the Japanese currency, or the yuan, the Chinese currency, uh, are, are still relatively low. Uh, and it contributes to, to those imbalances. And it basically also provides essentially a discount to imports coming into our economy. And that may sound good on paper. Everybody likes a discount. Uh, but what that actually means is that, uh, that that sort of discount is displacing American employment, uh, and we really aren't going to be able to make that up in other sectors of the economy. And um, also, speaking about the dollar, that does also weigh into the currency manipulation uh, aspect, uh, which, as we've talked about before, is not addressed with this trade deal, which is one of uh, a number, a handful of reasons as to why this is not a good trade deal. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we've known from the past, and I, you know, I, I think most of your listeners know what NAFTA is, the free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. It's about 20 years old. Uh, NAFTA didn't include, it didn't include any prohibition against other countries manipulating their currency to gain a trade advantage. Uh, Just after NAFTA went into effect in 1994, Mexico devalued the currency, uh, and it actually meant a lot of factory jobs were lost in the United States. Same thing happened. uh, Asian economies, uh, people may remember hearing about the Asian financial crisis uh, in the late 1990s, which really rocked 
the global economy. Uh, those economies devalued their currencies. We saw a flood of imports coming into the United States. We saw more than 30 steel companies go bankrupt, and we saw tens of thousands of workers laid off, Leslie. Uh, and then finally, when China entered the world economy in 2001, again, no prohibition against China manipulating its currency. It continued to do so for some time and still does to some extent, uh, and it's cost uh, millions of manufacturing jobs. And that's not just me saying that. That's actually MIT has done estimates, uh, the, the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, and others, and they've come to that same conclusion. So when we get to this new trade deal, it would seem logical that we would want to prohibit currency uh, from being manipulated to gain a trade advantage. Yet it's nowhere on the, the Obama uh, agenda, uh, and that makes me very frustrated because as a senator, he called for this. He said, we got we to gotta stop manipulating currency uh, as a part of trade deals. And he wrote to President Bush saying that. Um, he should be writing to himself today, reminding him of, of that fact. We do, uh, but it doesn't seem to have uh, gotten through just yet. Uh, a lot of questions. We have a lot of people uh, posting also on Twitter. So, Scott, there are people that are saying, don't we want a strong dollar and a strong manufacturing sector? I know you do. I know I do. And I, th I think most Americans do, regardless of the political ideology. So what is the solution? Yeah, so it's a good question. And the idea of a strong, I mean, no one wants a weak dollar, right? That sounds terrible. Uh, and, and it actually wouldn't be a great thing. Uh, but we need a competitively valued dollar. And that involves having the Federal Reserve consider the impact that our monetary policy has on our productive sector uh, as well as our consumer sector as well, because our productive sector is important. It provides more than 60 percent of our exports uh, going overseas. Uh, and then I think the other aspect of it is that, you know, the, the strong dollar overwhelmingly helps Wall Street. Uh, more than anything else, uh, and so let's let's have a dollar that, that's competitively valued. It doesn't need to be overly strong. It doesn't need to be overly weak, uh, but it should promote balance on our economy. And we're not getting it. And and I'll just remind folks that you know one of the problems with imbalances is that you get things like the housing bubble in the 2000s uh, that, that leads to recessions, uh, or the tech bubble bursting at the end of the 1990s, which, which led to an economic downturn. We don't want those imbalances, and that's something that strong dollar contributes to. Oh, I want to uh, read some tweets also. Of course, there are going to be people, you know, who want to blame uh, the president. And when we talk about the March jobs report showing that the factory sector is struggling, the economy is feeling the impact, and when will that trend uh, reverse? Uh, Martin J. tweets with the president who cares about the America and has a clue about effective management. Now, I know your feelings regarding the president on uh, trade. Um, I, don't, I don't think we can necessarily judge his feelings on America. Um, but do you think it comes down to ineffective management, this trade deal, for example? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And, I, you know, I don't think uh, the president's rooting against manufacturing or, or, or our country in any way. In fact, he's done a lot of things that are very helpful to our manufacturing sector uh, in terms of innovation and workforce training and apprenticeships. Uh, and, and Congress shares a large part of this blame by being completely out to lunch on investing in, in infrastructure uh, and other critical needs that we have uh, that continue to get backlogged uh, and, and, set, and set aside. Um, and so I think there's a lot of, you know, if you were going to allocate blame, there's a lot 
to go around. Uh, but part of it is the mismanagement of our trade policy, and that's something that I think largely uh, falls on, on the president. He's had the opportunity to change course. He, he hasn't done that. He's kind of reverted to uh, the Bush model of, of trade deals, uh, which is not a good thing. Uh, we, you know, if, if, he, if he is actually doing what he said he would do as a candidate, but we'd be in a lot different shape right now. But but it's up to all of us to hold him accountable for that, to remind him of that, uh, and to press him to change, and our lawmakers to do the same. And that's exactly what we've been working on. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back right after this. If you want to join us, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543 is the number. Pick up the phone and do so. Tweet us. Follow me on Twitter at Leslie Marshall. Speaking of Twitter, follow Scott at the AAM, at Scott Paul AAM. Also follow at Keep It Made in USA. The website for American Manufacturing is AmericanManufacturing.org. We'll be back to the President, Scott Paul, and you right after this. Leslie Marshall, welcome or welcome back. Um, Scott, uh, So just uh, so many uh, different comments going on Twitter for those that couldn't call in uh, so far in uh, this hour. Um, uh, they, they, they feel that I better dance now, tweets, that um, more bureaucrats need to be hired, more taxes need to be raised because government makes jobs. He feels that's a democratic mantra. He feels that's what FDR did. Now, whether he likes the idea or not, or obviously he does like the idea, um, does the government need to make more jobs or does the government need to do things, not just a trade deal as an example, but incentivize corporations for bringing companies back and for opening, you know, product, you know, production plants here? Yeah, that's a a very good question. And so certainly when there's a lack of demand, like during a a recession, uh, you know, stimulus is, you know, has has never been a conservative nor a a progressive thought. It's been kind of mainstream economic thought. Um, and you know, to, to make up for that demand. Um, and so that's, that's more like, you know, the government as an emergency room, uh, that, that is a, you know, that, that is kind of the nanny state, I guess. But there, I think there is a positive role for public policy when you think about this. I mean, no individual manufacturer on their own, no matter how competitive they are, uh, can control what America's infrastructure is like or what America's trade policy is like or what America's tax policy is like uh, or, you know, connect with other manufacturers on collaborative research uh, and development, all the things that make for a vibrant ecosystem for manufacturing. Uh, And so if there was no role whatsoever for government, We'd, we'd be left behind, um, and, and we, would, we could just forget about manufacturing because it is the one sector of the economy that is truly in global competition all the time. So, I mean, that sort of strategy is just not going to work. Now, you know, the private sector creates the jobs, but there's a lot that public policy can do to help support that job creation. Most definitely. Uh, just uh, so many people that want to talk to you that can't call in at work. Um, and uh, do you think that the regulation is a burden on businesses, all businesses, big and small, and that the administration needs to ease up or no? We, we, you know, we, we can continue the regulations and do some of these other things you've spoken about. Yeah, well, regulations have to be reasonable. Um, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, and, and the regulatory process is one that all, always balances costs and benefits. Uh, I mean, that, that's built into the law. Uh, and, and, 
the, you know, there's, there's probably some specific regulations that one can quarrel with. But I will say this, you know, it, 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 just Google pictures of Beijing and look what an unregulated environment looks like where there's pollution that actually causes hundreds of thousands of premature deaths every year. I don't think that's an America that anybody wants. And so I think there's a place for a reasonable regulation. Uh, and I think that, you know, when you look at actually even more highly regulated countries like Germany, they're doing better in manufacturing. So I don't know that regulation uh, is, is the exclusive problem of what's holding manufacturing back in the United right. States. I, I, just, I just don't think you can support it with the facts. We're back with Scott Hall, great friend of the show, friend of mine, and all of you learn a lot when he is on. We were talking about the March jobs report, a wake-up call about the impact of the strong dollar. Other things we're going to talk about with President of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, and I hope you'll join us at 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. That is uh, the number, and also follow me on Twitter at Leslie Marshall. Follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM to tweet us. We'll incorporate your tweets, your comments throughout the show. Um, we were talking about the deal that you don't like, I don't like, a lot of people don't like, and again, regardless of political ideology, Scott, because it's just not a good deal. And we're talking about the TPP. Um, and we talked about the fast track process uh, that it is designed uh, to pass before really we in the public have had a chance uh, to re- react. Um, Would you say this is a third rail, if you will, for progressives and even the Democratic base when we have an election on the horizon? I would say not only for progressives, but it is a way to alienate broad swaths of the middle class who feel very left behind uh, by these trade deals and in the globalized economy. And the unfortunate thing is that even though congressionally it'll take Republicans to get this through because there's just not enough Democratic votes for it, and that's partly because of the work that great people have been doing on this, and I appreciate you uh, giving giving air to them, Leslie. Um, but uh, but it'll, it'll fall on the president, and that will have an impact on the fortunes of the party in 2016. Uh, let's you know rewind to NAFTA again very quickly. There was a political implication. Uh, Bill Clinton chose to do NAFTA in 1993. Uh, the Democratic Party suffered at the time record losses in 1994. Lost control of the House of Representatives. Uh, it got swept out uh, in the elections. And so, I just I, trade deals are not a political winner. This one certainly isn't going to be. And uh, you know. <clears throat> It's going to be interesting to see what uh, uh, Hillary Clinton has to say about this uh, once, uh, as everybody kind of now expects, he gets out on the out on the campaign trail. Uh, Senator Clinton uh, looks like she would have opposed it. Secretary of State Clinton uh, looks like she would have supported it. So uh, it, it it's going to tie some folks in knots, and, and I think that's unfortunate. I want to know also Hillary Clinton is set to allegedly announce that she's going to run for president, you know, for days. And despite a poll that came out today that shows uh, her favorability has dropped and Republicans, you know, are are, are coming up, I, I, I personally feel it's a blip on the screen. She had numbers we'd never seen ever historically, left or right. Is this a moment, in a sense, for her to lead the fight against this, 
against this trade deal and to speak up and to separate herself from the Obama administration? Yeah, I think it is an opportunity, and she would not be the only former Obama administration official uh, to speak out about this. You had Jared Bernstein, who was the vice president's former economic advisor. Uh, you've had um, even Larry Summers, who indicated support for the TPP, indicated that uh, there's some things in it, including currency, uh, that needed to be changed. Uh, and, and all of that, to me, is encouraging. And, and the New York Times editorial board weighed in uh, essentially saying the same thing, uh, which is very rare for a major newspaper to do that. And so she would certainly have the cover to do it. Uh, I think that, you know, the time that that, uh, that, that, that uh, Hillary Clinton spent as being a senator from the state of New York, uh, she uh, was deeply engaged in manufacturing and spent a lot of time in upstate New York uh, in cities like like Buffalo, uh, you know, one of your home bases, I know, and, and, and others, Leslie, um, learning about the sector and, and talking about these, these trade issues. Uh, so if she returns to those routes, uh, I'm much more optimistic, uh, you know, for her and, and that her message will resonate. Uh, you already have some Republicans out there running for president, Mike Huckabee, uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, not that I take uh, Donald Trump seriously at all, but, but he's out there talking about it um, and, and indicating some, some concern about this. And I, I imagine that's going to that's gonna filter up as well. Uh, when, when we look at this trade game, a lot of people call it a rigged trade game. First of all, talk to folks about what people mean who – talk about, quote, rigged trade game and why people are so fed up with this. Yeah, it really is a uh, rigged trade game because um, we have, again, the policy is such that we, we, we give access to our market away, basically, uh, even though it is the wealthiest consumer market in the entire world. We only have 5% of the world's population. Uh, but we by far have the world's wealthiest consumer market. And so every country, every company is very eager uh, to, to sell into it. What we never do, though, is, is get, you know, guarantee access for our folks into other markets and do it particularly well. Um, and nor do we insist that the goods coming in um, to our own country uh, are, 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 are done on a fair basis. And, we make it incumbent upon industry and workers to bring trade cases, which cost millions of dollars, which can only be done after a lot of damage has occurred and a lot of layoffs have occurred. Uh, and that's why we call it a rigged system, is that it, that it really helps the importers. Uh, but the, the, the companies that have stayed here uh, that are putting people to work uh, are the ones who suffer the most under our trade policy. Let's take some calls. 8886 Leslie, 8886537543. Darren's in Indiana on line five. Hey, Darren, good afternoon. Question or comment for our guest, Scott Paul of the AAM. Yes, good afternoon, Leslie. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for joining um, us. Thank you. Um, I was thinking that maybe perhaps uh, the government can make jobs like FDR, uh, well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did during his administration. I mean, he had the the Hoover Dam Project, uh, the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and uh, a bunch of others. And uh, I was thinking 
this is what um, where government can help in some aspects, trying to improve uh, the lives and bring about more commerce. But then I draw back to what happened in California with the, the California earthquake when that highway down, you know, along with San Andreas Fault up there to San Francisco, where the highway was just, just obliterated from that earthquake, it took private industry to build it faster and quicker than in what it would have if the, the government did. So there's a catch-22 I see here. Scott? It's a, you know, it's a good point. I had mentioned that at various times when we've had depressions or, or great recessions, uh, we have had public public investment to help make up the difference. Um, uh, and, and we did that to some extent in 2009, although it was very small uh, by by historical standards, even though Republicans made it sound like it was outrageous, right? I mean, that, that was the message that was coming across. To me, I, don't, I, I can't imagine... In, in the Republican-led Senate and the House, that we that we'd get anything approaching that, and and I'm not even asking for that. I'm asking for uh, investing in infrastructure to just keep up with the needs that we have. Uh, you mentioned the the bridge in California, the, the highway in California. You know, the Bay Bridge uh, was was actually rebuilt uh, by the state. Unfortunately, they outsourced to China, and there still are all sorts of problems with it, and it didn't take t- uh, save tax dollars, and it actually didn't save any time. And so I do think there's a strong role for public policy, for the federal government, uh, to, to, to set the standards and to help the private sector uh, compete. Um, and I think that's a critical part of where our policy has to go, and I think it's something that's really uh, misunderstood uh, in, in Washington right now. And thank you for your call and your question, Darren. Comment as well. Uh, let's go to Brooklyn on line two. Gregory, Brooklyn's in the house. My mother's from Bay Ridge. How you doing, Gregory? Good afternoon. Question or comment for Scott Paul? Pretty good. How you guys doing? Uh, good. I just wanted to give a perspective from the American School of Economy, and that's to impose a 15% protected tariff in the United States, uh, a staple of the Lincoln administration and many years in the United States, and uh, also ending of free trade policy. Uh, they've done nothing for the United States. They've done nothing for anybody, really, except for uh, maybe some uh, corporations. Basically, what you'll get is promoting slave labor overseas and the runaway shop in the United States. Scott. Yeah, yes. Uh, Greg has some some points about historical policy, uh, and I hate to take your listeners on a, on a history lesson again, but we, we had a manufacturing policy in this country since 1792. Uh, and, and we basically got rid of it after World War II because we had no competition after World War II, and we were interested in rebuilding other economies, which, which made perfect sense at the time. Uh, part of that was a tariff, um, certainly. Um, those tariffs have all been negotiated away uh, through various trade deals uh, since World War II. Uh, but there are a lot of other mechanisms we can do to guarantee that level playing field, and we've been talking about them today, like taking on currency manipulation, uh, making sure that goods are fairly traded when they come into the United States, uh, making sure that we have uh, reciprocity. Uh, that is, we have access to overseas markets to the same degree that they have to our market. Uh, and, and unfortunately, none uh, of our policies are based on that right now. And, and that's something that we're trying to, something we're trying to fix uh, as part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I'm not 
completely optimistic that we're going to get there now, but it's the direction that we have to head. Uh, and, but the important feature of all of this, and, and what sounds like Greg is getting at, is that manufacturing has historically been at the center of our economic policy making, and I, I'm not sure it's there anymore, but it needs to be. Absolutely. Thank you for the call, guys. Oh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with our guest. You want to join us one more segment with our guest, Scott Paul, from the AAM. Follow him on Twitter, at Scott Paul AAM. Check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org, and also be sure to follow at Made in the USA. We're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He's Scott and Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, and we are talking with you. Last segment in this hour. God, the hour always goes by so fast when you are on, Scott, and we always have so many things uh, to talk about. Um, I want to talk about actual numbers, and especially for those that just uh, tuned in. The manufacturing sector lost in March, was it 1,000 jobs? And there's already a deficit in manufacturing with regard to unemployment, correct? Leslie, that's exactly right. We saw a uh, you know, we saw a downturn. Uh, we saw backward revisions to the numbers uh, earlier um, in in the year as well, which indicated that things weren't as strong as we thought they were uh, in January or February. Uh, and and it was definitely a slowdown. And so you know the, the question is, will we? You know, as, as America falls out, uh, at least the, the eastern half, you know, are we going to see that tick up, or is the strong dollar, the trade deficit, all these other factors that we've that we've talked about, uh, are, are they continue going to kick in and, and, and hold us back? Uh, and and we've been, you know, we've added uh, about eight hundred thousand manufacturing jobs since the end of the Great Recession, but we lost two point three million manufacturing jobs during the Great Recession itself, a very short period of time, uh, and we've yet to make that up. And so that makes it the worst performance uh, that we've seen for manufacturing in, in a recession other than the 2001 recession. My mother always told me, Scott, don't make a promise that you can't keep. And I'm a, I'm a Democrat. I voted for this man uh, twice, but I believe in calling things out as they are. Um, the president made a promise to create a million new manufacturing jobs in his second term, where we are. Um, that number has now decreased to, what, 372,000 approximately because of revisions to the previous month's data. Um, the revisions hurt, and even though there are, um, you know, there, there are these revisions, the original promise should have been kept or should there should have been more done uh, to keep it. And one way we've talked about is not putting forth a bad trade deal. That's exactly right. And so, you know, I was glad the president made that promise. Again, I thought it was eminently doable that we could get to a million jobs in four years in manufacturing. I thought that was totally achievable, uh, particularly with the right policies. Um, But they're falling far behind. They're not talking about it anymore. I I think that he wishes the promise uh, went away and that we wouldn't remind him of it. But but like you, I believe in in accountability on this. I support a lot of things the president has done. Uh, And I I do think he's done some things that have have helped move manufacturing in the right direction. But when you look at the trade policy, when you look at uh, dealing with uh, other countries' currencies, uh, making sure they're not cheating, uh, he hasn't done a great job. 
so we 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 have a lot of work to do, uh, and and we you know every every month on our website we have a little meter about how close the president is to achieving his goal, uh, and I know folks at the White House don't like it, but we're going to keep doing it. I'm, I have so many uh, tweets here, one, one of which, when we put out again the March jobs report showing that the factory sector is struggling, the economy is feeling the impact, and when will the trend reverse? Um, Bobby tweets, it will reverse when we begin making things again. And I, I mentioned this tweet because I know this is right up your alley, Scott, and I do want you to speak to this, uh, our listeners about this again, because I think people forget the power that they have with their dollar and their choices as consumers. He said, Leslie, it will reverse when we begin making things again and to offer livable wages to the middle class. Um, he talks about 18 to $20 per hour, but a lot of people say just do something above the minimum wage. That's something we haven't talked about today. Will um, offering a higher than minimum wage, a livable working wage, uh, make a difference? And obviously, if we begin to make things again, certainly will. Yeah, I, I personally believe it would make a difference. And I, I think about it this way, um, you know, especially with, with some of this income inequality, is that if you, you know, if, if, if a millionaire makes another million dollars, you know, it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to buy a car or another product, another manufactured product. Uh, but if you create someone to, and allow them to, to enter into the middle class through an economic opportunity, you betcha they're going to they're buy a car. And so you want a large, thriving middle class, and that means that incomes need to rise, and, and they have purchasing power. And, and a lot of those purchases will be of manufactured goods for, for themselves and for their home, things like cars and uh, washing machines and, and what have you. And, and you're right, if, uh, conscientious consumers, uh, I, 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 I encourage anyone to pursue 100% purity here because it'll kind of drive you crazy, especially when you're looking at smartphones and things like that. Right. Uh, but, but just do better than you are uh, and, and, and buy, you know look for the American-made label, uh, more often, and, and you'll probably be pleasantly surprised, again, other than kind of like in consumer electronics where it, can, it drives even me crazy. Uh, but, but there's almost any other area. You're going to be able to find choices that are American-made, and through your purchases, you will make a difference. That's absolutely right. Uh, another um, great uh, tweet by Ralph. Uh, I'm leery of allowing other countries guide our manufacturing policies. Very good point, right? Yes, we, we shouldn't be in these trade negotiations. You know, I honestly, I wish someone like Leo Gerard would negotiate them because he, he's, he sits down at a negotiating table uh, and has to make a deal and has to make a deal that's fair to his workers and the companies. Our negotiators go and, and they just give everything away and, and because they're told, well, we need it for foreign policy purposes. So just work out the details, but, but eventually we need to get the deal. And when you have a negotiating strategy like that, it's going to fail. It's going to leave workers behind. And unfortunately, uh, all too often, that's been how these have been done. Um, last but not least, uh, less than a minute, Scott. What do you want our listeners to do to change this? Because many share the opinion that you and I hold regarding this issue. Yeah, look, now's the time to take action, Leslie. I mean, the, the Senate's going to come back into session next week. They're going to start taking up a trade bill. In the committee, we have actions on our website, AmericanManufacturing.org, where you can weigh in with your senators, where your members of Congress. Uh, now is crunch time. Now is the time to make your voice heard. And I believe, I mean, there's stories I hear about, you know, uh, activists following Senator Ron Wyden, who's a key decision maker in this around in Oregon. 
Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of activism that, that, that could occur right now. I know the steel workers are going to be rallying in, in Washington, D.C. on April 15th uh, on this very issue. There's a lot of opportunities to have your voices heard. Uh, you can you can do it through our action or just simply pick up the phone, call your representative now and say, I want a fair trade deal. Plus, the PPP uh, is, is fair to fair to workers. you got to say no to it. All right. Thank you, Scott. Scott Paul, follow him on Twitter at Scott Paul AAM.